0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rozieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you want to know the difference between auger bits for woods and hardwoods? Are you not sure what to look for when shopping for old tools? Do you need some motivation to get back out into the shop after a slump? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 6 of the show for June 28th, 2017. So, you probably noticed that I've been away from the blog and podcast for a while. I've been on a vacation of sorts, though, I, I... I haven't actually gone anywhere, so I don't know if you actually want to call it a vacation, but I've been extremely busy working on our new cabin for the last few weeks. So uh, I took some vacation from my day job, and my brother and his friend came down from New Jersey for a week to work on the cabin with me, and uh, so I took some time away from the blog and podcast as well while we were hard at work on the cabin. The three of us spent the week building the front porch on the house and getting things one step closer to dried in and happy to say that we were able to complete the porch and the shingle roof is currently in process of being finished and once that's done I can put the last of the windows and doors in and we will be officially dried in. So as you might expect I have nothing to share from the shop this week because I haven't been in the shop in over a month now. Uh, after my brother and his friend went back to New Jersey, we spent some time kayaking and fishing on the river with the kids. And so between working on the cabin and some summer vacation time with the family, uh, I just haven't been in the shop. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in today's show. So I want to thank the folks that continue to support the show on Patreon. Thanks to Arkadias Joukowsky, Bill Warnock, Krister Kay, Lawrence Polinski, Palis- and Jeff Skiles for your continued support. Uh, and if you want to become a, a patron on the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast, as my special way of saying thanks. The next patron extra show is scheduled to be posted on June 30th, and if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show as well as past and future patron extra shows for as long as you remain a patron. And on the next patron extra show, I'm going to be talking about some non-traditional woodworking project ideas, so I I think that'll be a fun topic. So I do have some feedback this week, and I thank the folks who took the time to write in to share their thoughts on the show. So Mark Williams had some feedback on Sean's problem with drilling end grain from episode 5 of the show. And Mark says, with regard to Sean's drill problem, I don't often drill end grain, but I do have some suggestions that may help. Old-fashioned center bits should work. Also, both modern flat bits, which can be modified to have a spur like a center bit, and Forstner bits are available with quick-fit hex shanks. I have found these hex shanks work well in a traditional brace, And I often use one of the quick chucks and an 8-inch brace with a number 2 positive drive bit instead of a cordless screwdriver. Just as fast, faster maybe, and only needs a beer every once in a while. So Mark, thanks for that feedback. Um, But Paddle bits, um, Mark is talking about what we in the States call um, spade bits or paddle bits. I think he referred to them as flat bits. Um, so yeah, I've, I've used those in end grain before for construction purposes. Um, I'm not sure they're going to drill a real clean hole in, uh, you know, in, in cabinet grade stock, but certainly worth a try. Um, center bits. Yeah, I I love using center bits. Um, so they're certainly worth a try. Um, I think you're going to have to take it slow. Um, but you know, as Mark says, yeah, they will probably, probably work pretty good and, um, and the Forstner's, yeah, and that's a that's a uh, a good tip on looking for these bits with the hex shanks because that does help them um, in certain braces. You have to make sure the brace that you have has a chuck that's capable of holding a round or a hex shank bit. Um, if your brace chuck is designed only to hold the square tapered shanks, then they're gonna it's going to have a little bit of a problem holding a round shank bit or a hex shank bit. Uh, because those those jaws for those types of braces are are slightly different, um, and they won't hold round bits or, or hex, shank, hex shank bits too well. Uh, but as long as you have a brace that'll hold a round or hex shank bit, that's a good option. So thanks, Mark, for that feedback. So our friend Jonathan Jongsma also sent in some feedback on working with kids in the shop. And Jonathan says, lots of good suggestions about kids in the workshop in episode 5. My kids have shown a lot of interest in. Oh, sorry, my kids haven't shown a lot of interest in making too many things yet, so I haven't done a lot with them in the shop. It's mostly been limited to letting them help me make some very simple toy swords and things like that. But the one thing that I've found that my kids love doing in the shop is using the spoke shave on the shaving horse. My son will readily sit down with a spoke shave and spend a long time just making sticks slightly pointier. It's quite safe and it's a very intuitive thing that gives you pretty good results without needing a lot of skill. And it gives them a taste of working with wood. So if you want to encourage your kids to get into the shop with you, maybe a shaving horse is the answer. So thanks for that, Jonathan, and I absolutely agree with you. Um, My kids love to come in the shop and play on the shaving horse. Even if they're not doing any woodworking, they just love the shaving horse. Um, They'll come in and pretend that it's a motorcycle or a Star Wars speeder. Or a boat, or whatever, and they just love getting on the shaving horse. They love the the way the clamp mechanism works, um, and they'll get up on there and and just like you said, they'll they'll work with a spoke shave or even just a, a rasp or a file, um, or they'll just play on it and use it for something you know imaginative other than woodworking. So um, yeah, the shaving horse is definitely a good idea. Kids tend to love those. So thanks, Jonathan, for the feedback. So that's it for our feedback for this week. Let's get into the mailbox. So our first question comes from an anonymous emailer. Uh, This person didn't leave their name, so uh, I'm not sure who the question came from. But um, the question was, my biggest challenge with sawing to the line is that my joinery backsaw has no set, so you have to be dead accurate. So the simple answer to this question is to add more set. Um, In all honesty, I've never understood the fear of adding set to a saw You know, as long as the set is proper for the type of wood that is being used and the type of cut being made, there's really nothing wrong with adding set to a saw. Um, You know, for years it it had seemed like a lot of saw makers were trying to use less and less set like it was some kind of competition to see who could use the least. Um, But I really don't see the advantage to it. Um, Most saws need set. The only saw that really you can get by with that doesn't have set would be a very heavily taper ground saw like the old Distant Acme no-set models. But if your saw does not have a very heavy taper grind, then if it doesn't have any set, it's going to be hard to correct, as you found out. Um, And it's likely going to bind in the cut. You know, I had a dovetail saw that I made, a carcass saw, essentially, a few years ago. Um, and I originally filed that saw without any set to see what all the hype was about. And I absolutely hated that saw. It would bind in very short dovetail cuts. You know, I had made this saw for sawing carcass dovetails in like three quarter to to one inch thick material. Um, and it would bind in short dovetail cuts and, you know, seven eighth inch thick material. Um, wax really didn't help it much. Um, and it, it also couldn't be corrected. If I started to cut a cut a little, a little bit a little bit a little bit off, um, you know I, I couldn't correct. it. so I had to be perfectly dead on, which actually slowed me down quite a bit. So I added a little bit of set to that saw and it was like night and day. Uh, the saw cut beautifully after that. It tracked straight. Uh, it still cut a very narrow curve because I only added just enough set to keep the saw from binding. It didn't wobble. But it could still be corrected if I got started a little bit off. So I would say add a very small amount of set. You know, set your if you have a, a saw set yourself, set it to the very lowest setting that it has. And I'm absolutely sure you'll have better results. So add a little bit of set to that saw because just about every saw needs to have a little bit of set. So our next question comes from Jacob. And Jacob asks, are there different types of auger bits for softwoods and hardwoods? It seems like the ones that I find most often tend to work better in softwoods than they do in hardwoods. So Jacob, I'm guessing you are most often finding bits like the Russell Jennings number 100. You have to watch the lead screw on auger bits, and the Russell Jennings bits can be particularly deceiving because they have a, a double thread screw, at least the number 100s have a double thread screw, which makes the lead screw look to be much finer pitched than it really is. Um, if you visually compare the lead screw of a Russell Jennings number 100 to, say, an an Irwin auger bit, at first glance, the the Irwin will look to be a much coarser lead screw. And you may think that the Irwin is therefore a more aggressive bit. However, you're being fooled by the double lead screw, the double-threaded lead screw. So let me explain. If you take a, a piece of thread and you wrap that thread Down uh, like a sewing thread, and you wrap that down the threads of the Russell Jennings number 100 lead screw, what you're going to notice as you wrap that piece of sewing thread down is that it seems to skip a thread on its way down. And this is because the Russell Jennings bit actually uses two separate threads that are about 180 degrees offset from each other. If you use two different color sewing threads, In the two different grooves of the the Russell Jennings lead screw, you'll see what I mean because you'll, you'll see the two different colors taking different paths down that lead screw. The Irwin bit on the other hand is a single thread and while it looks coarser, it's actually a slightly finer pitch than the Russell Jennings number 100 double thread. So this means that the Russell Jennings number 100 will actually pull the bit through the wood faster than the Irwin taking a bigger bite. So this can be problematic in real hard woods, where a slower feed rate is actually beneficial. Um, and I found that the Russell Jennings number one hundred bits tend to strip out the lead screw hole in hardwoods more easier than Irwin bits because of this. It's trying to take too much wood, and the wood doesn't want to come off that fast. So it just really it pulls the lead screw out of the hole, um, and the the screw can't pull the bit through fast enough in really hard woods. Um, and this makes sense. If, if you read the description of the Russell Jennings number 100 bit, here's what the box has to say. The bits in this set are Russell Jennings number 100, unsurpassed for accurate work in seasoned woods, not extremely gummy or hard. Points are accurately centered with properly tapered double threads. So this description says to me that these bits were likely intended for the construction trade, where soft woods are the name of the game. This would also explain why the number 100 is the most commonly found of the Russell Jennings pattern bits. They simply just sold a lot more of them because really you had carpenters working with these bits, not furniture makers working in hardwoods. Um, If you do have your heart set on the Russell Jennings style bit for use in working with hardwoods, I recommend you look for a set of number 101 bits. Here's the description of the Russell Jennings number 101. The bits in this set are Russell Jennings number 101, designed for quick boring in hard or gummy wood, end grain boring, mortising doors, and similar work. Points are accurately centered with properly tapered single thread. So, being single threaded, they're more similar to the Irwin lead screw and less likely to strip out the hole in hardwoods. Um, Unfortunately, the number 101 bits are a bit more difficult to find than a number 100. And when you do find them, a set of 101s can run you a pretty penny. But still, if you want the Russell Jennings style bits, the number 101 is probably going to be a better choice for working in hardwoods than the more commonly available number 100. So I would look for the number 101s or uh, or try an Irwin bit. Um, I think you might find that, that it actually pulls through a little bit slower and might work a little bit better for you and less likely to uh, strip out the lead screw hole in harder woods. So our third question comes from Jamie. Jamie says, I'd like to hear more about turning on the pole lathe. There's so little information that I've been able to find on pole lathe turning, and I feel that it's so much different than power lathe turning or even turning on a treadle lathe. Um, So I built a, a version of Roy Underhill's Portable spring pole lathe several years ago, probably going on nine or eight or nine years ago now, um, and I used that lathe for a while. What I found using that lathe um, is that weight really matters in a treadle lathe, in, a, in a spring pole lathe, and the heavier that lathe is, the better. Um, I actually ended up at eventually donating that lathe to uh, one of the museums that I volunteered at before I left New Jersey. But not before I had the opportunity to use a lathe made by a friend who also volunteered at the, the same two museums, um, and my friend Warren's lathe was a true replica of a of the Rubaux spring pole lathe, made entirely of oak four x fours, and this lathe was one heavy beast. Let me tell you, it it was smaller; it had a smaller footprint than my Roy Underhill lathe. And couldn't turn quite as wide between centers as the one that I had built. But boy, was this thing heavy and stable! Um, and the way Warren set his up was with a true, you know, 14 foot sapling that he used for the spring pole, and he mounted that in the rafters. Um, and it was like a night and day difference using his lathe compared to using the portable Roy Underhill style lathe um, that I had built. Now you know, I'm not knocking the portable lathe because it's good for what it is. It's it's a good portable lathe. But if you want to set up a lathe that is is not going to need to be broken down and moved, you know, and and taken with you to different spots, I would really suggest against building that lathe. Um, like I said, it's a it's a decent lathe, but because it's so lightweight and the the throw is so short because of the um, the way the poles are rigged in that type of lathe. It's not the ideal setup. Um, if you can look at look at Ruboz lathe, look at Peter Fallensby's lathe, um, you know these are really heavy oak lathes that are meant to take a lot of stress and really hold steady and minimize vibration. Um, and that's really what you're looking for in these lathes because. You can put a lot of torque on your work and and a lot of power into a spring pole lathe. And with that power, you need the mass in order to dampen the vibration and keep that lathe from walking across the floor. I had a lot of problems with my Roy Underhill lathe walking across the floor, so I had to put it up against the wall in order to keep it from moving as I was using it. A heavy lathe just won't have that problem. It'll stay put, so I would recommend... Building yourself a real heavy lathe, if you can, if you want to use a spring pole lathe, um, with a good heavy pole, a heavy stiff pole, and I think you're going to um, find that it it uh, it does certainly work much better than the portable style lathes. Um, you know, if you're going to need to move the lathe, then then fine, you know, the port- the portable lathe will do. But um, the heavy lathe with a good stiff pole is going to be um, a lot. It gives you a lot more feedback, um, and I think that's going to work a lot better for you. Um, in terms of using the tools, really the main thing that I found using a spring pole lathe versus a treadle lathe with a flywheel or a power lathe is that your tools need to be much sharper. So you're not just going to grind the edge like you might do on a power lathe. You really need to hone those tools with a stone. Um, and in order to do that, you need tools that can be easily honed. Now you can hone high-speed steel if you have stones that are capable of cutting it Um, but i find using old carbon steel turning tools to work much better with pole lades so uh, i would say you know see if you can get yourself some some good old carbon steel turning tools Um, you can even buy new ones from tools for working wood made by ashley isles and uh, they are actually fantastic turning tools so i would say go ahead and get those or see if you can find some old carbon steel tools that can be honed up really sharp um, and that is going to help you quite a bit learning to turn on a pole lathe so once your tools are sharp just take it slow and look for a shaving not a scraping action you actually want to cut the wood um, and as long as you're not scraping you ride your bevel and take your time um, and you'll you know you'll pick it up pretty quick um, I was able to uh, to do so pretty quickly um, I'm not a great turner but uh, I was able to pick the pole lathe up fairly quickly and, you know, I can I can make a go at it. So um, it'll take you years to become a professional at it, um, but you should be able to get decent results, um, you know, fairly easily with just a little bit of practice. So uh, give it a try, Give you know, build yourself a good heavy lathe, get yourself some good tools that can be sharpened um, and honed really sharp um, and just get pumping and see what happens. Okay. And our last question comes from Chris. Chris says, looking at the used tool market, I have trouble determining what is worth my effort to try and restore and what I should run from. Any tips you can give me? So Chris, um, there's a lot that you can do with, with old tools. Um, and it can be pretty intimidating You know what to look for when you're first starting out, when you're looking at old tools. But um, you know, I like to keep it pretty simple. Um, there are folks that make a hobby out of tuning up old tools. And it seems like to them, the worse condition the tool is in, the more of a challenge it is for them and, and the more the reward. Um, if you're just interested in woodworking, I would say you're going to avoid most of the tools that these people are going to be trying to restore. Instead, what I want you to do is, is look for tools that are in good shape. Um, you, you know, you're going to look for something that's has all the parts you don't want certainly don't want anything that's missing parts you know if you're looking at saws make sure all the saw bolts are there if you're looking at hand planes make sure all the parts for the plane are there if you're looking at chisels well there's not a whole lot about a chisel but don't go buy in a bunch of unhandled chisels if you're just starting out get some chisels that you know can be cleaned up and sharpened up without a whole lot of extra work rehandling and things like that yes you can save money by buying chisels without handles. But what I find with folks starting out is when they buy chisels without handles, they end up then going and buying more chisels with handles and the chisels without handles sit in a drawer or sit in a box and and they may or may not get to them rehandling those chisels someday. So don't bother starting with chisels that don't have handles. All right. So we'll we'll, we'll take a let's take a couple tools um real quick and and you know we'll we'll talk about what to look for. So, I think we just talked about chisels. Get chisels with a good solid handle. Don't worry about rehandling chisels at this point. Make sure that the tools aren't heavily pitted. Surface rust is okay. Pitting is bad. Um again, there are people who thrive on restoring old tools and taking old pitted tools back and making them work again. Um you know, if you're just interested in woodworking, you don't want to spend a ton of time on tools. So, Get something that's in pretty decent shape. You may have to spend, you know, $10 instead of $5 for that chisel. But, um, as, you know, if it's not pitted, you're going to spend a lot less time honing and getting that tool ready for, for use. So good, solid handle, no deep pitting, um, and you should be good to go with chisels. Handsaws, again, you want a blade that doesn't have a lot of pitting or any pitting if you can help it. Um if it's not sharp, that's fine. You can send it out to be sharpened. If it's got surface rust, again, no big deal. You can send it. You can uh, clean it up before you send it out to be sharpened. Uh, make sure all the saw nuts are there. Make sure the handle is good and solid and doesn't have any cracks. You know, if it looks like a saw that somebody respected and put away and maybe just needs uh, a little bit of sharpening, that's the type of saw you're looking for. If it's got broken handle, if it's missing saw nuts, if the blade is bent... Um, if there's pitting in the blade or the blade is so heavily rusted you can't e- you can't even see metal, um, that's something you want to walk away from if you're just getting started. It's just not something that that you're gonna want to put the time and effort into if you're looking to get started woodworking. Um, that's something you know to leave to the the people who enjoy the tool restoration piece of it. Hand planes again, make sure you have all the parts to the hand plane, that you're not missing a cap iron or or screws or handles or anything like that. Make sure the blade isn't heavily pitted. You want to make sure you can get that blade sharp. And if there's pitting on the back side of that blade close to the edge, you're not going to be able to get that blade sharp. So I would recommend you look for a blade that doesn't have any pitting at all. If it has a little bit of surface rust, that's fine. Make sure there's no pitting. Make sure the backside of the blade is smooth or can be made smooth, puts a little bit of work on a stone or a uh, or some sandpaper, and, uh, and that blade is capable of getting sharp. Make sure the body of the plane itself is not heavily pitted, and that any rust that's on there can be easily cleaned off, and that all the parts move freely and nothing is frozen and rusted solid, uh, and you should be in pretty good shape. Most old planes can be cleaned up fairly easily, and with a sharp blade, they will work just fine. So, you know, like I said, try and avoid the worst of the, uh, the worst looking specimens and look for something that, you know, looks like it's in good shape. You might spend a little more up front, but you're going to do, have to do less work on that tool to get it back to working order. And that means you're going to get to woodworking a little bit faster. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, You can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs, Well, did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do? The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget Go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So, today's main topic is staying motivated or getting remotivated to get back into the shop after a break or a slump. The premise for this question was somewhat self serving. Uh, first, I wanted to solicit your input and your participation. You know, I wanted to hear your voices on the show, and ju- not just my own. But I've also, I also haven't been very motivated myself to get back out into the shop after finishing up my last project. Uh, mostly, it's been because I've just been so busy with working on the cabin and with my girls being out of school for the summer. But uh, even in the evenings when I'm not busy with either either of those things, I just haven't really had the motivation to get out there. Now, I know many of you likely experience the same thing from time to time. So I wanted to you to share your ideas for getting or staying motivated to get out into the shop. So in the last episode, I asked you all to send me your voice memos or voicemails with your tips on getting motivated to get back out into the shop. And I did get a few, and I'm, I'm going to share those tips with you today, as well as one or two of my own. So to start things off... Our friend Jonathan Jongsma sent in a voice memo, and here's what Jonathan had to say.
1: But your question about motivation, uh, I have the same thing. Um, often after a longer project, I will lack motivation to start a new one for a little while. I think it's partly just sort of getting over the hump and thinking about the planning that you need to do to make sure all the uh, joinery, Goes together right, and sort of the precision work of it makes it a little bit daunting to start sometimes. So what I tend to do in that situation is I just pick up some green wood, um, split it, and and start carving some spoons. That way I get a bit of woodworking um, done, and it's enjoyable. It's not stressful. It lets you be a bit creative, but still work with some wood. And then by the time I've carved a couple of spoons. Um, Usually the motivation returns and I can get back to uh, furniture making or whatever else I want to do. So that is a great tip, Jonathan. Thank
0: you for setting that in. You know, a lot of times doing some type of little small project like Jonathan recommended, you know, he he likes to go out and carve spoons. That is a a great way to kind of get the mojo back. You know, you've just finished something big and complex and you really don't want to get started on you know, it's another big complex project. So, uh, you go out and you knock out a couple of small things and it, it just lets you, you do something, um, use your tools, you know, whatever, and get you kind of back into the groove until you're ready to start on that, you know, next complex project. So that's, that's great tip. Great advice, Jonathan. Thanks for sharing that with us. So the next tip was an email sent in by Andy Margeson. And Andy says, For me, it's not so much a question of being motivated to get into the shop as that there are other things that motivate me as well. For example, in the summer months, I enjoy being outdoors and active, so my shop time decreases. I do a lot of home improvement, and sometimes that takes precedence. I'm not always motivated to work on a project, but that doesn't mean I don't enjoy being in the shop anyway. These are often times when I pick out a tool and try to teach myself to use it better or try a new technique. Bottom line, it's fine not to be motivated to build a project all the time, as long as it's because there's something else you'd rather or should be doing. So thanks, Annie, for sending that in. And I I couldn't agree more. You know, there are times when uh, I'll finish up a project and then there's just something else that I want to be doing, you know, whether it's spending a a few weekends getting out on the river, doing some fishing, um, or if it's hunting season, I might be hunting or working in the garden Uh, working on the yard, although I'm not a big fan of of landscaping and yard work and mowing and and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, doing the the garden work, helping my wife with the garden is something that I enjoy or um, might be doing, you know, fixing some fencing around the property or, you know, something like that. So yeah, there's always other things that might be, I might be motivated to do or that I might need to do and that might keep me out of the shop. So, uh, you know, good tip And uh, thanks for sending that in. So next up, we have a voicemail from Scott.
2: Hey, Bob. It's Scott. And I'm just reading your email here regarding getting motivated to get back into the shop. And I know that what you're going through, I've certainly been in that situation many times where you just feel unmotivated to do anything. But what gets me going and gets me back into the shop is watching a good video, either from yourself or some of my call sellers, and watching them cut a dovetail or chop a mortise or get me something to get me motivated to get me going again and sometimes that's all I need to kind of get the juices flowing but it is tough sometimes to get going especially when you got a lot of things going around you in the outside world but uh, getting back into the shop and getting going again certainly uh, cures all those ills so that's kind of what gets me going again I look for something I can do and something I can uh, something simple and something, you know, not too difficult just to kind of get the juices uh, flowing again. But again, a lot of times I'll just go and watch a good video and kind of get me motivated again to uh, let someone get me, uh, get me motivated to get in there. Hope all is well.
0: Thanks. Bye. Scott, great ideas. In fact, I, I, I've been doing that a little bit myself recently. Um, I've gotten into uh, Don weber's uh welsh chair welsh stick welsh stick chair dvd uh, and i've been watching that the last couple of days my my wife and my kids are actually out of town uh visiting her sister for the week so i'm i'm kind of having a little uh bachelor party here by myself and uh i've been watching don's don's welsh stick chair stick chair dvd and that uh, kind of has me wanting again to really build one of those chairs so um you know watching videos always seems to to help me anyway uh one of the things that i like to to watch when i'm not really that motivated to get out is the the woodwright shop you know roy always seems to he he's got such an energy that he makes you want to get out there and and do these things in the shop so um you know not every video has that effect for me um but roy usually does if i watch some some videos that roy has done um, you know, he has just such, has, just has such an energy for the craft that he really makes you want to get out there. So uh great tip. And then, you know, just like Jonathan mentioned, building something simple, you know, you, uh, Scott mentioned the same thing, you know, it, it's an excellent way to, to, to knock something out quick and really kind of get you back on the horse. So, uh, you know, that, that seems like a pretty common thing that folks like to do when, they don't have a big project in mind, just knock out something simple and something familiar, you know, something that you know you can do. Maybe you've done it before. So, thanks again, Scott, for sending in your voicemail. So, our last uh, voicemail comes from Jeff Guerrero, and here's what Jeff had to say
3: Hey, Bob. So, this is Jeff Guerrero. I'm in uh, just outside Chicago, Illinois, um, and I've been listening to your. Podcast uh, for the last couple months. i been really enjoying it. Thanks for putting this out. Uh, I wanted to respond to your question of uh, <clears throat> how do I get motivated to get back into the shop when I'm in a slump? Um, so, this question is actually really timely for me. I've been trying to finish up what is probably my biggest project yet. I'm putting together a table and uh, I've had to think about this a lot to keep moving forward on it. Uh, I'm, I happen to be pretty strongly influenced by momentum. So it, it takes a lot of torque to get me going on something, both mentally or physically. Um, but once I'm headed down a path, I'm, I'm all in and I'm fully engaged. So I've been trying to find some tricks to, to exploit that. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that it helps relying on the snowball effect. So if I just by start by kind of putting away a few of the tools I left out from a previous step, um, i often feel better about the space I'm in, and it'll lead to sharpening up a dull blade or... Um, Often before I know it I'm, I'm starting to make a couple cuts or um, working on the next joint. So um, another thing I've found that helps is to think about the next project. A lot of times I I tend to get disengaged with the current project just because I become excited about something new. Um, so. What I found is that it helps to challenge myself to finish the current one because it'll I'm, I'm, it'll allow me to move on to the next one. You know, a lot of times I can't move on to the next one right away just because uh, you know of timing. I got to finish this current one, uh, or I you know I can't don't want to spend money yet, or I can't yet on the next the next set of wood or tool that I need for the next project. So, um, so I just use it as motivation, I guess, to to kind of finish this next one, and um, it'll it'll get me it'll get me moving on what I am excited about. That much quicker. Um, And the the last tip that I I thought about is kind of a continuation of that. Um, How do I, how do I build that momentum to continue on the, um, this current one? If like, if it's like the next step is really daunting or something, if I know it's going to take a full day or a weekend to finish the next step. um, I often don't have that kind of time. Um, in the shop at once so I found that it really helps by um, breaking the next step into you know tasks and even subtasks Um, if I can set a goal of like batching out a set of tenons or squaring up a certain number of boards for a next step um, it'll not only get me you know one step closer to the finish line but it helps me um, to just to stay engaged and to get excited about the current project that I'm on So, um, I, I suspect that these are not unique to me and that a lot of, a lot of woodworkers out there and other hobbyists, you know, do these types of things, but hopefully, um, hopefully other people find these useful. So thanks for, um, asking the question and, um, I look forward to, uh, um, you asking other questions and to engaging more. All right. Take care.
0: So Jeff, thanks so much for for sending that in and for that that uh, well thought out response. You know, I I do a lot of the same things. Um you know, cleaning up after after I'm finished with a project. I almost always spend, you know, a few hours at least to, you know, a day cleaning up the shop after I finish a project, you know, just vacuuming up the dust and getting in all the the little areas where th- dust and shavings tend to to creep. Um, and that gives me time to think about the next project. So yeah, I do a lot of that myself or, or sharpening, you know, uh, you know, I try to do a lot of sharpening while I'm working so that uh, I'm always working with sharp tools and I don't let them get too dull, you know, but inevitably just like it, you know, a lot of us do, um, certain tools will get kind of dull. So, you know, I'll touch them up between projects and that'll kind of, you know, set the bar and get me ready to, to start the next project. Um, and then you mentioned thinking about the next project. I think that it, you know, that is something that I, I tend to do from time to time. Um, but I, I haven't used it. I don't know that I've used it as motivation to get me through the, the current project before, but I think that's a good idea. You know, usually what, what ends up happening with me is I'll get excited about the next project and, I'll try to, you know, I'll get started on that right away or there's something, you know, I see a piece of the wood that would be perfect and I'll start planing it or get started on the next project and then the current one kind of gets pushed off and put on hold but um you know I like your idea of trying to use it as motivation to complete the current project that way you can move on to the next project and you keep that momentum going so yeah that that's a that's a good suggestion um and then breaking down things into smaller tasks, you know, that's a great idea as well. Um, And it's actually one of the things that I mentioned in my intro to hand tools classes. um, I use it as a method for buying tools because a lot of people tend to, you know, beginners tend to go out and want to buy all their tools before they start a project. And, um, you know, I I use that whole task based um, project to, to try and show people that you can buy tools a little at a time. Just based on the tasks, instead of looking at the project as a whole, look at the individual tasks and break down your projects that way. But I like your suggestion of uh, using the smaller tasks, you know, t- as motivation to kind of get you out there because, well, you know, you've got so much left to do. But if I could just go out there today and you know, cut the dovetails for one drawer or or plane up, you know, a couple of boards, you know, that would be a, a good accomplishment. And, uh, and yeah, that's good, good motivation because you can actually accomplish something. And I'm actually, I've actually, I've actually been using that with the cabin that I'm building right now. Um, you know, I've got a list of these different things that all need to get done. And when you look at the list as a whole, or when you look at the house as a whole, there's just months and months and months of work and so much that has to get done before we're able to get our CO and be able to move into the new house. But when I look at the list and I can say, well, I'll just do these one or two, tasks today and as i keep going down that list and checking off a task and checking off another task you know every one of those tasks that i can check off is getting us one step closer to moving in so it's motivation to keep you know walking up the hill to the the building site and and working on the i'm working on another project so so thanks jeff for sending in your voicemail and uh, and all those suggestions they're really great ideas so I will, uh, you know, everyone's ideas were were certainly real helpful to me. So thank you, all of you, for for sending in your voicemails and your emails. Uh, And I'm sure that they've been helpful to other folks listening as well. Uh, And I do have a a tip or two of my own that I will close with as well. Um, I did, you know, mention watching a video before, watching DVDs or videos of interest. Sometimes what I might even do is watch videos on things that, on, on ways to build things that I wouldn't necessarily do. For example, um, I might look at, uh, an old new Yankee workshop video or a video by someone on YouTube that is really machine heavy or, or CNC heavy or something like that. And then take the challenge to kind of say, okay, how can I build that same thing with the tools that I have? Um, and that sometimes motivates me to try something you know if it's just an interesting project but they're not building it with hand tools I'm not you know necessarily looking for someone to show me how to build something with hand tools I, you know I can usually figure that out on my own but it's the project itself or the or the item you know it might just be a small thing and then I'll challenge myself or think sit down and think about okay how can I build that or something like that with the tools that I have? Um, and that kind of gives me a little motivation to, to get out there and try something and mess around, even if it's, you know, just something little and, and not a, and, you know, a big complex project. And then one of the other things that I like to do to to get remotivated is to, uh, is to read books. You know, um, the new Rubo book is good because there's so many little things in there that you can pick up. And uh, they make you kind of want to get out and try these different these these different tasks, or these different techniques, um, or even uh, just flipping through a museum type book. You know, I have books from the Winterthur Museum um, and from Colonial Williamsburg and from the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, Their furniture collections from all these different museums, and I look through a lot of those. And yeah, a lot of that is is period furniture. Um, and maybe that's what I want to build or maybe it's not, but it at least gives me some ideas. You know, I might look through there and see, you know, like a knife box or or a tea box or something like that. And it'll just give me, it'll spark an idea for some other kind of box or some other type of project. So just looking through books a lot of times will give me some motivation. So thanks to everyone who sent in their tips and uh, I hope the rest of you have found them useful, you know, as well as the, the couple tips that I was able to add. And that's going to do it for this week's show. So I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this, because as usual, without your support, none of this would be possible. If, As a reminder, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, you can leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123 you can also use the contact form or email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's show, you can find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt006. And in the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show. You can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. You can also sign up for my newsletter to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And you'll find links for all of these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.